This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses' work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. My name's Andrew Carroll. And today we're talking about the soulful manager of hard bodies, Richard Jenkins. <laughs> Andrew, run down his history. Richard Jenkins was born in 1947 in DeKalb, Illinois. He studied drama at Illinois Wesleyan University and began work with the Trinity Repertory Company in Rhode Island. His first film roles include Feasting with Panthers in 1974 and Silverado in 1985. He acted steadily throughout the 80s and 90s in the likes of Hannah and Her Sisters, The Witches of Eastwick and Flirting with Disaster. He became a favourite of the Farrelly brothers in the late 90s and early 2000s, appearing in five of their films over a dozen years. He has worked with the Coen brothers three times in The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty and Burn After Reading as the soulful manager of Hard Bodies <laughs> and Ted. In 2007's The Visitor, Jenkins scored a leading actor nod at the Oscars. Jenkins' versatility as an actor has never been in question, as he easily switches between Schmaltz and Dear John, comedy in Adam McKay's Step Brothers, horror in The Cabin in the Woods, and fantasy in Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. On TV, Richard Jenkins is best known for Six Feet Under, Olive Kitteridge, for which he won a Best Actor Emmy, and Berlin Station. He is married to fellow Trinity repertory member Sharon Friedrich, with whom he has two children, and who he won the company's Lifetime Achievement Award with. Yeah, and we're joined by a uh, returning guest joining the Two Timers Club, frequent headstuff contributor Matt Conroy. Welcome to the show in person this time. Hello, hello. I'm very, very excited to be in the studio this time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Thank thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Uh, To talk about such a enigmatic figure. Yeah, big dick Jenkins. (laughs) Sad eyes Jenkins, I think. Yeah, yeah, you were on the show previously discussing Bill Camp, and you're back now discussing another versatile veteran American character actor. And. um, yeah, when Andrew and I were talking about covering Jenkins, he suggested reaching out to you to be a guest. And I forget, did, had you expressed an interest in coming on the show to talk Jenkins? Or I think I said something on Twitter. I, I think, think so. I, yeah, I think yeah. I said because I think it was, I and I'm realizing him, I don't think it was intentional, but really, there's a certain through line between him and Bill Campbell. I think they're both I think so, have, right? a, have yeah. a similar gravitas, and they they both have a kind of a there's a there's a sadness that you kind of always want to hug him, the person. I don't know. There's yeah. a, I don't know. Yeah. I think like Bill Camp. You see him and you're like, oh, this man is very tough. But you, you kind of, the more you see him on screen, like he reveals a sort of inner sensitivity. Whereas I feel like Richard Jenkins is just all on the surface already. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 But um, yeah, I love him. And Still waters run deep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I just think he just naturally projects a warmth that just makes a lot of his characters kind of instantly lovable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think all of his performances are, there's like a, there, there's a line between decency and just pathetic and there's he has he's always somewhere on that on the spectrum with the exception of something like something like Cabin in the Woods where mm. that decency is kind of used to like make an absolute bastard yeah where yeah. Cause he's playing such a, a, a everyday type mm. but like it's always that line where it's like it, it runs to, into so so kind hearted in such a cruel world it's kind of pathetic or he's just the, 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 the symbol of decency in the movie or something yeah that's because I do think of him as being an innately kind actor but the summer I first noticed him I suppose was that um him being in the cabin in the woods and him being in killing them softly mm. in both movies playing these kind of annoying bureaucrats yeah. who sort of comment on the action of the movie <laughs> but um yeah it's just so weird stuff will i kick off and start talking with the visitor yeah on a little oh, monologue because yeah. i'm the only one who watched it. it yeah so um yeah as my andrew mentioned like working steadily since the 80s mostly up until 2007 it was smaller supporting roles played a lot of cops and special agent characters who show up for a few scenes in movies by big directors, you know, even before he was well known. He's working with the likes of Clint Eastwood, the Coens, George Miller, Catherine Bigelow, and Mike Nichols. But um, it was his starring part in The Visitor that I think led him to be cast in more major or main roles. And I think after The Visitor, you notice that Richard Jenkins' name is on a poster, you know? <laughs> and um, yeah, this is written and directed by uh, Tom McCarthy, um, probably best known for Spotlight. And um, he plays Walter, Jenkins plays Walter, a professor in Connecticut who, after his wife's death, has become very withdrawn emotionally and socially. You know, he never f- smiles or frowns. His interactions with others are very brief and to the point. He appears to have no passion for his teaching gig whatsoever. But despite the lack of enthusiasm, he's forced by his college to represent it at an academic conference in New York. And while there, he goes to stay at a second home he owns. And on arrival, he discovers two undocumented immigrants, a couple named Tarek and Zainab. Um, who played by Haz Zyman and Danai Gura, who I think is in The Walking Dead. Sure. Danai Gura. Yeah. Um, living in the apartment. Why not? 
And um, <laughs> Good for her. Walter eventually lets the two stay and grows particularly close to Tarek as they both love music. And Walter's late wife was a pianist and Tarek plays the, the djembe, I think it's pronounced. Uh, it's like a West African drum. Mm. And But their bonding is disrupted when Tarek, after misunderstanding, winds up in a detention center for undocumented immigrants. And so the rest of the movie is Walter, Zainab, and Tarek's mother, who's played by an amazing Hiam Abbas, who is... Succession. Succession, yes. Marsha, yeah, yeah. Logan's wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're trying to get Tarek out. Where's Tarek? He was arrested. What? Yes. In the subway. Arrested? It was just a misunderstanding. They said he'd be released later tonight. How could this happen? He knows better. He wouldn't do anything wrong. No, he didn't. He didn't. I'm sure it'll be okay. No, it won't be okay. No, I went down to the precinct and made a statement. That doesn't matter. We are illegal. We are not citizens. And when they find out, they're going to... Excuse me. Yeah, the more I do the show, the more I'm constantly thinking about what makes a good actor. And I think that while most people we cover on the show are very versatile, most have one or two qualities that, for whatever reason, makes them distinct and stand out to audiences and their qualities are very hard to shed for a role and I think oftentimes how effective an actor is in a movie is how well they utilize those qualities either playing them up for the camera or tampering them down depending on what's best for the character they're playing or the movie they're in and um, yeah I just find Jenkins is just such an inherently kind presence and I guess it's He's got that kind of classically handsome face, the warm, slightly gentle voice, the sad eyes. Um, you know, he often moves in a very gentlemanly way. And I, I think he radiates a caring, almost paternal energy. And I think that side of him is really well deployed in The Visitor because in the early stretches, his character is quite curt with the people he's interacting with on a daily basis. Like a student tries to submit a paper to him late and he just coldly rejects it without asking about the personal problems the student said caused it to be late. There's a person in um, his apartment block in New York played by Richard Kind and he stops Jenkins' character in the corridor and is clearly eager to start a conversation but just as he's talking Walter's like it's nice to see you again and just walks away (laughs) and leaves the guy sort of uh, standing in the lurch. But I think because Jenkins has that natural quality and because he's playing numb as opposed to something kind of more heightened and emotional your thought isn't what a jerk it's more like poor guy you know like it's a shame he can't connect (laughs) with others and Similarly, because there's something just warm about Jenkins, you totally believe in his character's journey in the movie because you kind of watch his character's icy exterior or kind of guard at the start of the movie just gradually thaw to reveal this intensely caring, passionate, kind man who you can tell is loving it, just grooving when he's playing drums with Tarek in a circle with a bunch of others in Central Park. And um, I think The Visitor is a Tom McCarthy movie and shares some DNA with Spotlight in both story in that like, it's shining a light on a social issue, you know, people being imprisoned for moving countries in the hope of a better life. But it's also similar to Spotlight in structure in that once Tarek is detained, its story time becomes very procedural, aside from maybe like one heightened scene instead of Mark Ruffalo shouting like, they knew in Spotlight, it's Jenkins's Walter shouting at a clerk in a detention center like, it's not fair, we're not helpless children. And it's like a tad Hollywood, but it, it still works and like Jenkins kills it. And he's also got really good chemistry with um, Abbas's Muna, who's this like similarly older, quiet, haunted person with whom Walter forms this will-they-won't-they they connection while they campaign for her son's release. And I don't, I was watching, I was wondering about the decision to have this older white character be the way into this story about the experience of undocumented immigrants in America. But I think here it does work because I think, for one thing, once Walter meets Trek and Zainab and later Muna, it becomes a movie not about one man, but these four characters who all feel equally real and lived in. But also, I think by having... The character of Walter bookend the film. It comes not only a story about immigration, but also about the importance of human connection. So I think it's a great movie. It's very sad, so be prepared. I watched this on uh, Paddy's Day, and um, it really bummed me out. <laughs> but it, it's incredibly gripping and important, and uh, Jenkins is phenomenal in it, and um, was rightly Oscar-nominated for Best Lead Actor. Would you call it a consummate performance by him? Because it's his Oscar-nominated performance. I know he was his first nomination, right? So I think it's his first, like, Because whenever that happens, so is, this the, is this the performance that you would say sums him, him up, or would you say it's, like, was it the, the, the social issue part of it? Yeah, I, th- I think it is 
is the one that sums them. It just it deploys him so well because it's a very versatile performance in that it's transformational, but it also gets at the root of what makes him such a compelling figure in movies. Yeah, I actually didn't know that was Tom McCarthy because doesn't he, he Jenkins shows up in Spotlight, doesn't he? I think he does a voice. He's a voice in the phone, yeah, which, which is, is yeah. actually a very good scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. He actually is, it, it shows that his his warmth comes through in that because he's kind of playing a very committed character because he's the guy who's exposing it, a book that no one's read, I think. So I think it really, it, he, even that, it comes off across and just that spotlight scene, just when he, he just, just over the phone, that kind of warmth comes across and that kind of dedication. Yeah. Um, we move on to something totally different. Yeah. Um, we do Step Brothers. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jenkins plays Robert Doback, a doctor and father to immature adult Dale, played by John C. Riley. Uh, when Robert meets uh, Nancy Huff, played by Marie Steenberger, Mary Steenberger, Bergen, you know, and the two fall in love, marry and move in together, meaning Dale must share a room with Nancy's immature adult son, Brennan, Played by Will Ferrell. Listen to me, Dale. Look, when I was a kid, when I was a little boy, I always wanted to be a dinosaur. I wanted to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex more than anything in the world. I made my arms short, and I roamed the backyard, and I, I chased the neighborhood cats, and I growled, and I roared. Everybody knew me and was afraid of me. And then one day my dad said, Bobby, you're 17. It's, it's time to throw childish things aside. And I said, okay, Pop. But he didn't really say that. He said, stop being a fucking dinosaur and get a job. But you know, I thought to myself, I'll go to medical school, I'll practice for a little while, and then I'll come back to it. Dad, how's that a skill? But I forgot how to do it. You're human. You could never be a dinosaur. Yeah. Hey, I lost it. Well, Dad, what's the point? I'm... Yeah. The point is don't lose your dinosaur. Yeah, I think Richard Jenkins is the best part of Step Brothers I, I agree yeah it's between him and Adam Scott for me to be honest I, I, I think Adam's uh, Jenkins has more screen time and opportunities but uh, yeah no you're probably right yeah I just think like because he's doing so many things at once because he's like starts off as the straight man mm. for just the insane Brennan and Dale to bounce off of and I, I think just some of his deadpan line deliveries or scenes where he freaks out are so perfect like mm. There's a bit where Dale is protesting about Robert's wife and her son moving in with him and he's arguing as men they won't be able to do as they please with a woman around. He starts listing all these weird hyper-masculine things that they supposedly like to do and Jenkins just takes a brief pause and is like, we literally have never done any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Karate. <laughs> and, um... But he also, I think he's very good at, like, the freakouts, like, yeah, the bit yeah, where, yeah. you know, he's obsessed with his boat, and then, you know, Brennan and Dale steal it to make a, a video for their rap song, uh-huh. <laughs> and they have a viewing party for the video, and as it's playing, you see, like, Brennan and Dale performing on the boat, and it just cuts to Jenkins being like, wait a minute, who's steering the boat? <laughs> and you see a crash, and Jenkins starts screaming like he's in physical pain, and, um, but he's also, like, there's, like, hints throughout the movie he's kind of as weird as his son. Yeah, that he's, like, just as insane. Um, like, for, as you said, he for, first he appears to be the straight man, but he's soon revealed to be hiding this bubbling well of insanity to match, <laughs> like, the hair trigger tempers and impulsive natures of Dale and Brennan. Like, every action he has with uh, Brennan's brother Derek, with Adam Scott, is as in giggling like a schoolgirl. It's know, like he's, he's, like... It's the idea is that he's in love with Derek because he's the son he never had. Yeah, but exactly, Jenkins yeah. plays it like he's in like romantic love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he actually has an arc as well. Like, like it, it, he comes off as a straight man at the start, and then like <laughs> I think what works for Adam McKay's comedies as well is like a lot of those eras comedies. They were like they always had to have a. Me- I feel like they had a formulaic plot and a message. It was like okay, we got to have to have like a nice ending at the end where it makes sense. Whereas, uh, so you think that's going to happen with Step Brothers, whereas, like, they, they, they get their act together, they're like, okay, they're, they're not li- living as adult children anymore, they're now becoming in the world, they're entering the world as they should, as grown-ups, and then there's that sequence, where, and Richard Jenkins is like the inciting incident, where he's like, he's just, it's so funny, he's so distraught, and his son's finally getting their lives together, he's like, your hearts are broken, and he's that, the, the fantastic, like, T-Rex, you want, you want to be a dinosaur, and it's like, you, that's what he wanted to be, and I, like he really, that's that that sequence. I think is like the, the the insanity of Adam McKay's comedy worlds. Like these worlds are just insane. There's no like, there's no like funny people, and then there's like a, a straight man around the world. Everybody is just insane. In these in these worlds, and the, the world ends in like in just chaos at the end. So, and his <laughs> yeah. his, I think Richard Jenkins is like being the, the what you know. He's a straight man, but yeah, he's also insane. But at that point, he like crosses over into just absolute insanity, and it's a fantastic scene. Just just the, the just the weird T Rex mo- motions he does is just. Yeah, if a character isn't insane in those movies, it's because they don't get the opportunity to go insane. Like, Marie Steenbergen is, like... She never gets much of an opportunity, but even she really sells the line, like, where he's, like, he abandons his family at Christmas, Richard Jenkins, and goes, I'm going to Cheesecake Factory. And <laughs> comes back in, and she's, like, puts down her book, to, well, 
you reek of scotch and cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. And Adam McKay, I think, clearly hates everyone in Step Brothers. And I think that's what some people annoys people about his prestige movies, and mm. that like he's doing that, and also the movie's very serious. Whereas, I don't know, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley do kind of make you like Brennan and Dale, and just how pure they are. Mm. <laughs> you know, do you kind of like like being around them, even it's though like, they're horrible? You, you hate them with a certain movie because like they are so such big babies, but like they like they 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 force the world to gravitate towards their energy, <laughs> yes. and by the end of it, like you're on board, and everyone is. Even like the therapist is kind of <laughs> that, that scene with the therapist. Like, like the, the climax is amazing, and just like just the. I have traveled four hundred miles <laughs> to give you my seed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing because I feel like so many yeah American comedies they do have that moment where it goes sentimental, and I yeah I feel like this movie does the parody of yeah. that you know yeah. where um it's at the. Catalina White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all saying it. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah just because he tells this crazy story about how his dream as a kid was to be a dinosaur. And he, uh, Jenkins' character, and he says, I chased the neighborhood cats and I growled and I roared. And the soundtrack swells. Like it's um, what he's saying is very profound. And um, he recounts that his dad said, You're 17, it's time to throw childish things aside. And so you know, he talks about going to medical school with the intention of going back to pursuing this dream of being a dinosaur <laughs> as an adult. But by that point, he had lost the ability. And like the motto of the story, he's recounting to his sons is like, Don't lose your dinosaur, don't become boring like me, let your free frag fly. But the whole time, Farrell and Riley just keep interrupting by being like, How is that a skill? <laughs> You're human, you can yeah. never be a dinosaur. But the, the genius of Jenkins there is that like, he's not saying it like he's like I was acting like a dinosaur I was once it made, the way he sounds like I was once able to turn into a dinosaur he just sounds like it's so straight but it's just so funny at the same time like it's, it's just just because of his commitment to it I suppose and also according to Jenkins the monologue was not scripted apparently McKay just told Jenkins to go over to Pharrell and Riley and explain that he wanted to be a dinosaur <laughs> and it's a, just a testament to his skills as an actor that he not only managed to deliver that monologue without breaking, but he turned it into comedic gold. Like, yeah. every line of that monologue is so strange and hysterical, you know? Um, we move on to another um, big comedy, Stan Jenkins, Burn After Reading. Yeah. Now, we watched it both kind of recently for this, so I didn't rewatch it because we oh, covered Malkovich. John Malkovich, yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, do you watch it for this? I watched it yesterday, yeah. 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 Do you want to talk one down? I, no, no. Yeah, no okay, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'll like, go it, back and listen to the John Malkovich <laughs> episode, yeah, yeah. part two. Yeah. yeah, so obviously, you know, the film itself is like, there's of those kind of uh, postmodern Coen Brothers movies, it's like, I, of the ones that are like, I put them in with like Big Lebowski and obviously Serious Man, like movies about like meaningless plots uh, and they're somebody searching for meaning. And this one is, I think it's the, the What's great about Brant Reading is that it's a, in the side of a conspiracy thriller with a literal MacGuffin, and it's all these characters together who are like all think that the set like the main character of their stories in that, in that mm-hmm. film. I, like George Clooney, they all think that like he's a paranoid schizophrenic almost by the end of it. <laughs> they all like they're all they all they're all awful <laughs> self-absorbed. And it's a film about like the little MacGuffin in the form of uh, John Malkovich, he's an analyst character, and he writes a memoir, and obviously memoir. a, a memoir, <laughs> memoir, and like. <laughs> And like everyone, in this, everyone else in the story is convinced it's like this high level secret. So it becomes this 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 this, this literal MacGuffin, this meaningless thing that everyone's going after. Um, and like the the this plot becomes like Byzantine, like by by the fault of everyone's self absorption and just the, I mean, humans' innate ability to overcomplicate things and <laughs> search for meaning where it's not. And and everyone in that story is awful, except for Richard Jenkins, mm. who kind of. Pays the price for his decency yeah. <laughs> and he yes. the plot, and he yeah. just it's 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 fantastic. Like, and yeah, and I I think for me, I mean, this I couldn't tell when I was watching all these things where I was like, he's the best part about this movie, but maybe it was the cognitive bias of doing this podcast. But I was like, his scene, I, I think it's the scene when he's sitting with Francis McDormand, he's like, <laughs> and he's like, he's like, you know, she's like, oh, you know, she sees it, it's like you're nothing but the. What do you guys describe him as at the start of the podcast? Oh, the soulful manager the soul, of our bodies. Yeah, yeah our that's, bodies. that's how he's described in the script. Yeah, that's that's how. It's like basically what she says to him, and, and he's like, "No, you know, I, I didn't used to always about this." And you expect him to be like, "He used to be like a biker," and then it's like, because the picture he gives her, it's like the most ridiculous image in the film is with Richard Richard Jenkins, probably like forty something year old Richard Jenkins, and in the full priest garb and the hat, and, and the best line, the best line, he goes. 14 years Greek Orthodox Church <laughs> it's like for just for the, the coolness which he, as if as if he spent 20 years in like a prison of war camp or like 14 years <laughs> yeah. Greek Orthodox Church and so she's like oh yeah like, like what, just, uh, what can I do with could, that information yeah, you could yeah. tell the Coens were like laughing themselves over yeah. when they, they thought that but it was just so and again yeah, he he 
his character is the one who's least involved in the plot but ends up paying the biggest price for it obviously and like, he, he pines for Francis McDormand and he's he's so funny and he's always like kind of on the periphery and like he makes one decision in the whole thing and it, and it costs him his life <laughs> it's just so sad and then it's like the, la- the the ending is so brutal as well just like it just cuts to the yeah, it just goes straight to the back to J.K. Simmons in the office as well. Like, I don't know what you guys think of his performance in that, but I love it. I just, I love how he basically underreacts to everything. He's just a, like a quiet side. It's why he's like I think a lot of people would describe uh, Richard Jenkins's characters as like sad sacks. Uh, I think I think they're right in describing him as that soulful <laughs> yeah. in this, yeah, because uh, yeah. it is soulful. It's like, like a, like. What made this man leave the Greek Orthodox right. Church and become a gym manager at a place called Hard Bodies? Like, how bad was the church that he had to go back into the world? Don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> but even when he's shot in the shoulder by John Malkovich in the end, he's just kind of like... <sighs> and then makes a very half-hearted attempt to run away before he's being hacked to death by a, a hatchet in the street. Yeah. And, like, you you look at Richard Jenkins's performances and, like, I've talked about The Visitor. We're going to talk about some of the more, like serious movies like The Shape of Water or you know Bone Tomahawk or uh, The Humans or whatever and you kind of forget that he is like this great comedic actor and because he's really funny in Flirting with Disaster bringing like a real like screwball energy there he's really good in Step Brothers but like he's always finds like the best like his performance is always like he finds like the way to elicit the most laughs but like it's never the most obvious choice yeah you know like yeah. I don't know why it's funny in Burn After Reading that he is so soulful but yeah, <laughs> it works yeah. I think the same of him in um Bone Tomahawk as well probably yeah. yeah 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 just like he's like just that, that one monologue he has about wanting to read in the bath but not being able to because <laughs> his fingers keep getting the pages wet yeah, yeah. and Kurt Russell's like what about one of those music stands like, oh I suppose I'd never considered that before <laughs> it's almost like somebody told him to cure the, cure the cancer when he says yeah, that yeah. oh that music stand is like wait what? it's like the whole new world's open to him yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about um, Dear John yeah sure Richard Jenkins plays Mr. Tyree no first name Father to John Tyree, played by Channing Tatum, a U.S. Marine sergeant who has fallen in love with college student Savannah Curtis, played by Amanda Seyfried, while on leave in his hometown of Charleston, North Carolina. After 9-11, John's deployment is extended indefinitely, and he communicates by letter to Savannah and his father. Hey, Pop. I got somebody I want you to meet. Hey. This is Savannah. Hi. It's nice to meet you, Mr. Tyree. Wow. Um, he, wow. Uh, he, this is my, he collects coins. He, um, it's kind of like his big cut. This is amazing. Cut. You have uh, so many coins. How did you get started in all this? Uh, uh, through John, actually. Uh, it's not his thing anymore. Uh, you know what? We should probably maybe go. This coin? That, uh, that's a, that's a Sacagawean uh, mule. It's actually. You want to see some more? Yeah, absolutely, yes, if you if you don't mind. Put this uh, glove on there. Thanks. Yeah, so I watched Dear John as part of a movie marathon kind of season over 11 weeks with my housemates. Uh, there was every movie adap- adapted from a Nicholas Sparks book we'd read. Uh, now, Notebook is the peak, all right? No- the Notebook's the mountain. The Longest Ride is the best after that. And then at the very, very bottom, you've got... Um, uh, what are they called again? Uh, the lo- uh, choice and the best of me, both dreadful films. The choice is like a Tim and Eric sketch, but with no punchline. <laughs> and the best of me is just genuinely awful. Um, I've never seen James Marsden or Michelle Monaghan give a worse performance. Uh, <laughs> apologies if they listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, but I think, and so just in terms of like Nicholas Sparks adaptations, I never thought I'd be here. <laughs> I never thought. Who knows? This is where life takes you. Um, Dear John kind of falls in the middle of the list, I guess, because the ro- the romance and the chemistry is crap. There's zero, there's zero chemistry between Channing Tatum and Amanda Seyfried. Um, uh, mostly because uh, a lot of the back half of the movie is kind of extended montage narration kind of stuff because Channing Tatum is in Afghanistan for like six years and Amanda Seyfried is back home in North Carolina getting married to another man. Um, hence the Dear John of the title one of the letters she writes him is a Dear John letter saying I'm breaking up with you by the way enjoy your life don't get shot um, but Richard Jenkins is John's father obviously and he um, he has um, well he's implied to have by the film and by um, Amanda Seyfried's character to have like autism or uh, I guess what they used to call Asperger's syndrome because he's like 
has difficulty connecting, difficulty communicating, and difficulty like expressing his emotions to any to his son or anyone else. And he's like obsessed with this coin collection he has. And obviously, autism operates on a very very broad spectrum. Uh, and like yeah, so it's really hard to pin down in like a performance. Uh, like we have Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man, which at the time was considered groundbreaking, and now is kind of like, I mean he gets the general idea <laughs> and then you have something like Atypical on Netflix which the, for the first season it was like everyone's like oh this is shit it doesn't it doesn't have any clue what uh, autism is or anything like that and then they hired like autistic writers and actors uh, for the second and third seasons and it's pretty well regarded now and I think Richard Jenkins' performance kind of sits between these two it's neither Rain Man nor is it Atypical um, like it's a romantic dra- uh, war drama with a patriotic streak a mile long Um just for, if anyone thinks they're getting like a rom like a, a good romance out of this, they're not. And if they're getting like a, a decent story about uh, autism, they're not. Um, and like I watch these movies because I'm I'm not a big crier at movies. Um, it takes a lot for a movie to make me cry. Um, I think Shark Tale was the first movie um, uh, to elicit that, that strong an emotional reaction from me. Um, but that's a story for another for another podcast. Um, I can't be that open with you yet, man. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Richard uh, Jenkins was in that somewhere, and we can get a story maybe about that. Uh, maybe he was, yeah. But um, spoiler: his character dies. He has a stroke, and Channing Tatum has to fly home to see him. And the, at the opening of the movie, there's like narration where um, Channing Tatum was like, "The last thing I thought of uh, was you." And we assume the you of the title. This is, shows how crap a romance it is. Is Amanda Seyfried's character, but that's actually his dad. Um, which is um, pretty devastating that he can only find a point of an emotional connection with his dad as he's as he thinks he's dying and then like uh, it gets to kind of like the back half of the movie and he reads the letter he wrote to his dad in full and that's the only bit I cried at that's a lie I did tear up at the end where um, Amanda Seyfried is like you gave him time it's great anyone, anyone that's seen the movie knows, knows, knows what I'm talking about anyway mid-tier Nicholas Sparks which one Which in terms of crying levels how would you rank it Notebook's number one puppet for crying. Right, yeah. Um, well, in ter- I think I only cried at three of them. So um, I suppose Dear John is in the middle, Longest Ride third, and Notebook up the top. Uh, Safe yeah. Haven, is that one of them? It is, yeah. That's bizarre. That's yeah, a that's the one. I heard well. that's really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I thought. I think it's not. I thought Remember Me was in Nicholas Sparks forever, but I think it's not, is it? It's not, but... It that's might as well be. That's also, <laughs> it may as well be, and also really fucking strange too. Yeah. 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 I mean, everyone, I know the ending. Everyone knows the ending, yeah, but the lead up to it is... Bizarre. The only thing I remember about Dear John is when it came out. It was was it the film that beat Avatar or something like that? It was the first movie to take Avatar off number one, and it was oh, right. being in the ads. <laughs> the film that overtook Avatar. It's like, I mean, it's been out for two, for six months or whatever. Yeah. It, it's bound to happen sometime. It's a really dull film. <laughs> like, it's not good. Right. Anyway, moving on. We move on to a not very dull film. Yeah, uh, Bone Tomahawk. Oh no, God, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. Um, yeah, upfront we should probably say we're huge fans of S. Craig Zaylor, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, me and I don't know how you feel about Mark. Uh, I've, I, I've seen Bone Tomahawk and I don't remember Cell Block, but I remember really like that. I haven't seen Dragged Across, Dragged Across Concrete, um, but I really love Bone Tomahawk. Right. Yeah. Dragged Across Concrete's great too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've heard people say it's so misanthropic that they hate it, yes, but yeah, I haven't yeah, seen yeah, it. Absolutely. Either. That's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it though, though. But, um, yeah, we're S. Craig Zaylor apolog- apologists. Yeah, you, he started as a novelist, and you've read some of his books, right? I've read, I think I've read all, all, nearly all of his books, all of the novels anyway, yeah, and they're all really good. They, um, at least three of them, uh, Wraith is a Broken Land, Day of the Jackal, and uh, not Day of the Jackals, but like something to do with Jackals. The Congregation, Congregation of Jackals. Yeah, Jackals. yeah, that's it. And then there's, those, are, those two are Westerns, and then Mean Business on North Ganson Street, is the, which is a great title, um, is like the crime novel set in like Detroit, but worse. Um, like it's full of like suicide cults and stuff like that <laughs> just a nasty broken down city uh, in middle America but um, yeah they, they, all those three novels had the same energy if not worse than Bone Tomahawk cool yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. check them yeah. out um, do you have a puffer Bone Tomahawk I do yes yeah. Richard Jenkins plays Deputy Chicory an elderly deputy prone to distraction and given to nervous rambling in the town of Brighthope nonetheless he is trusted to accompany Sheriff Franklin Hunt played by Kurt Russell local cad John Bruder played by Matthew Fox, and injured foreman Arthur O'Dwyer, played by Patrick Wilson, in the rescue of Arthur's wife, Samantha, played by Lily Simmons, from a clan of cave-dwelling, cannibalistic Native Americans. Just so you know, it's not racist against regular Native Americans. <laughs> they do introduce they, the, the, the professor character, played by Zion McLaren. 
half an hour. It's 50 50. It's, yeah. I like that they made the attempt. I like that they made the attempt. That guy is a great actor. Yeah, yeah. And he's pretty clear about how. Because there's that Matthew Fox. When he says that thing about like I've killed so many Native Americans, like that's an, an ugly, ugly boast. boast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I think it's a good line as well. Um, yeah, I, what I love about his movies is that you know, stripped down to their bare essentials, they're just gnarly genre or Gina, exploitation Gina's movies. Genre cinema. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like yeah, Bone Tomahawk is this Western horror hybrid. You know, and it's a cannibal movie. Ball and Sebok 99 is a prison movie. Dragged Across Concrete is like a cops and robbers movie, kind of like those Italian poliziotteschi flicks, yeah. <laughs> you know, and his movies very much give you the things that you expect and want from films in those genres. You know, like, because I think before you meet the cannibalistic troglodytes in Bone Tomahawk, I think he em- Zayler emulates the vibe of a John Ford Western or a Spaghetti Western really well. And then, you know, when it becomes a cannibalistic survival thriller, it's really tense. Yeah, it's, it's extremely gory. It's funny because I, when I, I, I only saw it for the second time last night and my memory of it was like, it was like dust till dawn. Like, oh, there was a, a Western part and then suddenly it became the cannibal part. But watching it last night, I was like, no, it's pretty upfront from the start that these are cannibal. Yeah. But just through the genre, because it's obvious, like the because the, the in the first scene you see that uh, David Arquette's uh, accomplice getting his intestines taken out immediately, yeah. so it, you know immediately what, what kind of movie it is. And then, but then because of this, the time it takes with the four or five characters, just, just the, they're walking for like most of the movie. Mm. But it's so it's so intoxicating and so good, and because the actual violence part at the very end is relatively short I'd say mm, for the whole yeah. movie. Yeah. But be, it feels so impactful because you spend so long with them for just yeah. them walking, and that feels. Something like, it almost feels like, what's the Kelly Reichardt movie? Mix Cut Off. Mix it reminded me of that, just the, just the walking of it, except it's like if there was a cannibal family at the end of Mix Cut Off. <laughs> Mix Cut Off, great movie, but it did like a cannibal, so, did, you know, yeah, Bone Tomahawk yeah, kind yeah. of has a beat. Yeah. Um, I think, because Zayler comes from a novelistic background, I think he imbues his movies with a lot of rich detail that you wouldn't see, though, in, like, a, an older exploitation movie, because, like, his films are quite long, but they never drag, because I think everything extra adds to the story. And uh, I just think not only does the dialogue re- is really good in Bon Tomahawk and Jenkins got some great lines, but I think the characters and their relationships feel really three dimensional. And I think the way the story plays out and why certain characters make certain decisions feels really organic. And um, you were saying that you weren't sure if you were going to watch it because like the last act is so viscerally violent, mm-hmm. like a man does get split in half Balls from the first. groin. Balls first. <laughs> yeah. Balls first. <laughs> That was the first film I went to a press screening for. I reviewed it for the <laughs> University Observer in UCD. And the woman beside me was obviously not expecting that to happen either. Because it started out with a gasp as he's like, you know, taken out of the cell and stripped. And then he's he starts getting scalloped. And she the shrieks just grew and grew. <gasps> that yeah. kind of thing. If you don't know it's coming, I imagine yeah, it being yeah. crazy. Because I, I knew coming. it was, I was coming like, when I saw it first. Christ. Uh, yeah. Because you told me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, I just think you can kind of forget, though, like when until you rewatch Bone Tomic, how funny and charming the first 80 minutes of the movie are, just you know, witnessing, you know. Okay. Patrick Wilson is obviously brooding because his yeah. wife has been kidnapped. Yeah. But, like, you know, he's quite romantic. And then the other three characters, you know, played by Kurt Russell, Rich Jenkins, and Matthew Fox, they're just trading this kind of, like, snappy mix of banter mm. and barbs. And I think, like, Jenkins' character is really interesting in that, like, he functions as both the comic relief, the everyman, and the heart of the movie, and fulfills all those three things while still feeling like a real person you might meet yeah. out in the world. Evening, Sheriff. Check green. How, how was out for a ramble? <laughs> Ooh, that tea smells gruesome. It's soup. Oh, is you? You think I could have some? I haven't had a good meal today. Maybe not anything. Nab that chair and sit. I forgot the spoons. You think you can drink this without burning your mouth? Oh, I like challenges. Oh, boy, that smells good. Now that I know it's not supposed to be tea. You need to make sure you have a couple of good meals every day. Uh, can't have my backup deputy pass out because he forgot to eat. No, no, sir. That'd be shameful. No, sir. Chickory is one of the deputies to Kurt Russell's sheriff named Taunton. Russell just looking and acting like he just walked off the set of The Hateful Eight onto Bone Tomahawk, <laughs> which he probably did yeah, because those yeah. movies came out the same year. And 
Shigri is a widower and at first I don't think seems like a natural fit for sheriffing. You know, he's older and at times he's not like the sharpest. His first scene in the movie, he walks into a room where Hunt is preparing food and he's like, oh, that tea smells gruesome. <laughs> he's like, it's soup. <laughs> he's like, oh, can I have some? And then he's like, no, this tastes like corn. And Kurt Russell's like, it's corn chowder. And he's like, well, things are looking up. <laughs> um, I think you get a sense that Hunt has appointed Shikri to the position, I think, just because he's a good person. You know, he's trustworthy. And to his credit, Shikri does spot David Arquette's character acting shady at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie, which is good police work, even if it does uh, kick all the horrors to come yeah, off. Yeah. But um, I also think making Shikri the deputy is Hunt's way of making sure Shikri is managing okay after the death of his wife. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like giving him a role to take his mind off the grief. And that's just never said outright, but it's it's just the way Shikri looks up to Hunt and how Hunt treats him differently than the other younger deputy who goes on to be split from the balls. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that makes that relationship makes you love the characters and helps you understand why Shikri would accompany Hunt on the mission to rescue Patrick Wilson's character, Bill Dwyer's wife, even though he doesn't really have skin in the game, mm, you know? Yeah. And, you know, he's a lot less skilled and more frail than other members of the party. And I... I think they're, they're qualities which make him a bit of an audience surrogate for viewers and that like in a movie full of very tough men in the old west Shikri I think to modern viewers or maybe at least to me I can identify with more yeah, you know absolutely, and yeah. he's yeah. just an older guy on an adventure with yeah. his friends and um you want to be Kurt Russell but you're really a Shikri yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. and it's- it's, it takes a grown man to admit that to yeah. himself. Sure. And like, aside from maybe Wilson's character and his quest to like save his loved one, which I think, yeah, anyone can relate to that. I, I think Jenkins's character is the most relatable, yeah, <laughs> Loki. Yeah. But um, what do you think of him in the movie? I think he's great. I think, um, I think the strongest part of the movie is those character dynamics. And I think his dynamics with all those characters are within that the most interesting. I, I think both, with, you talked about Kurosawa so much there, which I think, is the best relationship in the film, and like it is really touching the end of the film when he when he's forced to do it. I think I think I think we've like we talked about his his decency in all these films and all these roles, but here is a, I think the, a film where like it's at the start of the film seemed like the biggest crutch because the world the world is so brutal and so violent. Where his his outlook and his attitude and vibes, <laughs> just general nice guy old man vibes, you want to give a hug, mm. would not work in in that world. But at the end of the film, kind of maybe is what saves him in a weird way or because of because of what he's he's, he's able to do i mean i and by, i think it's not just his he he, he plays off these other guys so well like obviously curse i think his, his dynamic with matthew fox is very fascinating as well matthew fox we haven't seen in, i haven't seen i think he's been in a movie since this but like yeah, he's his, very good in it he's very very good yeah. in it and like his obviously his characters are uh, a racist we don't excuse that but like we understand he think he were killed by native americans yeah, yeah. yeah so you know um the classic western yeah. archetype yeah, yeah. and like thing, their yeah. dynamics is very interesting because it gets it's Obviously, it's it's very frosty, but then like the the, the spoilers, Matthew Fox's death scene is very touching, and like it's like they have a moment together, and it, mm-hmm. it really works. I think my, my favorite line is when Matthew Fox is like he says like slur about the the Mexicans who get on his horse. He's like he says something like, "I can't believe my horse would ever let them on their back," and he goes, "Did you teach your horse in bigotry? Did you?" <laughs> 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 just, so I, it's so it's the the perfect timing of it, and it just was like their their dynamics so well, and I think. Yeah, so he he brings that obviously he brings that decency and here but here it's a crutch and here, it's 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 probably the most of performances here maybe the the the, the I mean maybe there was a, there was a, I mean a bigger performance in Dear John but maybe didn't his work as well but this is probably his biggest performance in terms of eccentricities and it's probably the biggest one that works mm. see it's such an eccentric character and it, it's we've seen these characters before who are almost in westerns they're always like drunks and stuff but here it's like the and the community often like shuns them but here it's a community trying to as you mentioned kind of giving him a leg up but even though a he, purpose kind yeah of, and yeah. yet he has a lot to offer as well obviously because he, he, he was in the war um, he must have been very old in the war cause what year is this set I was wondering about that Yeah, that, yeah. that seems like a weird detail yeah. he's I a doctor yeah uh, he was yeah. a surgeon in the war or whatever like yeah. a war surgeon uh, I think it's set in like like most westerns kind of in the 1880s yeah. and 90s because yeah. yeah. anything before that they didn't really have like the guns because he doesn't <laughs> strike me as a soldiery type which was why the war thing was like oh that's interesting but yeah. maybe he was just literally a doctor there yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, I mean, cause, yeah he, it didn't sound like he just fought he just had the skills that they brought him yeah. in and stuff like that. yeah but I think he yeah, I think I think I think uh, I think I think it's it's his best performance. It involves the most eccentric characteristics, and he, he really nails. It. I think he's he's fantastic in this as well. Like, yeah, I just think like you have this like great multi layer character combined with an actor who's just perfectly cast and able to convey comedy, pathos, and fear sometimes all at once. Like in terms of comedy, the thing where Sean Young, who's like the mayor's wife, is like 
why was my husband, the mayor, not informed of this situation immediately? And Richard Jenkins is like, well, the sheriff told me to go get him, but I'm old and I forgot. And he's like, do you really expect me to believe that? And he's like, I'm hoping. <laughs> um, I also really like the scene where, um, it's just this little scene I think is funny, but quite emotional. Um, the bit before they go on the journey and you see Shikri go to visit his wife's grave. And as he's walking up to it, he says very casually, hey, Greg. And you think for a second he's talking to someone we haven't seen yet in the shot, but he's saying it to another grave, <laughs> a guy named Greg, who is probably like his friend, you know? Yeah. Um, but then also like in the more frightening part of the movie there's a point where Shikri and Hunt drug their whiskey with a fatal amount of opium and then try to bait the cannibals to drink it and one of the cannibals takes a big gulp and spits it out and Jagan's line delivery is so perfect in response where he says like it's gotta taste better than people <laughs> and I think it's like the perfect mix of like footy fearful and frustrated mm-hmm. and I asked it but it's very emotional when Hunt is being horrifically tortured mm-hmm. and Shikri is caged watching on and horror but at the same time, he's trying to comfort Hunt as he's suffering. So Shikri just shouts over and over again, like, I'll make sure you're avenged. I'll make sure of it. You will be avenged. Because he knows that's what Hunt would yeah. want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, what Hunt told, almost similarly had told. said yeah. to the, the, um, the younger deputy. Mm-hmm. And you just really feel the horror and hurt in his voice watching this person he loves be in so much pain. And um, I even think, like, Jenkins' physical performance in the movie is really good in that, like, he kind of moves and shuffles like an old man. Yeah. But also has this glint in his eye suggesting that he might be a bit more intelligent than he lets on and that like those inane ramblings about the reading in the bath yeah. or flea circuses <laughs> or our way to liven things up on this arduous journey. I think it's almost a way as well for himself to cope but him wanting to get everyone on his energy as well. Yeah, like, when things so feel hopeless. Yeah, you know? he, want, yeah. He, he knows he's being a bit of an old fool but he knows that being an old fool kind of is what gets people a little bit energized maybe sometimes mm-hmm. or past the despair of the situation. Yeah. Also, cool fact, do you know the cave in the last act of the movie is the same one they used in Iron Man? No, I didn't. That yeah, is a cool, fact. cool thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know that fates are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Will we... Do you want to talk about Cabin in the Woods? Yeah, sure. Another horror. Um, Richard Jenkins plays Gary Sitterson in The Cabin in the Woods. He's a technician in an underground facility dedicated to an annual ritual sacrifice. Gary and his co-worker Steve, played by Bradley Whitford, uh, are set on sacrificing um, Dana, Kurt, Jules, Marty and Holden, uh, played by, in order, Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, Anna Hutchinson, Fran Kranz and Jesse Williams, to ancient dark forces before the night is over. God damn, that was close! Uh, photo fucking finish! Ooh. I don't understand. You're celebrating? They're celebrating. I'm drinking. But she's still alive. How can the ritual be complete? The virgin's death is optional, as long as it's last. Main thing is that she, you know, suffers. That she did. It's so strange. I'm actually rooting for this girl. She's got so much heart. And you think of all the pain and the... Tequila is my lady! My lady! Come on in, guys. Come on in. Come on in. You're welcome. So in order to stop ancient gods from waking up and destroying the world, they have to sacrifice four or five teens to, to them uh, to in, in an elaborate ritual, ritual that the teens pick themselves. Like, you know, uh, I think it's, what is it, zombie cannibals or redneck zombie cannibals. There's a difference between the two as the movie is keen to point out. Uh, giant monsters, apes, stuff like that. Um, and mermaids. Yeah, and merman. <laughs> merman, mer- 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 sorry. Yeah. Um, and just for the record the funniest bit in this movie is where I only remembered it now is when the ri- the, it's all ha- it's happening all around the world yeah the Japanese the kids yeah. rich, the, the Japanese kids solve the 
fucking curse of Sadako or whatever is going on in their classroom and it pans out to reveal Richard Jenkins is watching it on a TV and he's like fuck you fuck you fuck you to all these 10 year old girls um, and so he's like um, Gary's a man who's very very good at his job because he because he has to be and because he's been doing it for so long and so he treats it casually when it's going really well and treats it very seriously when it's not going well so for instance when a tunnel fails to collapse he's there like he's the man on the ground he's there putting the wires together to make sure the explosion goes off and then when uh, the uh, what they christened the whore uh, Jules in the sexy blonde archetype uh, played by Anna uh, Anna Hutchinson in this um, is like about to be killed or whatever she's about to have sex with uh, Chris Hemsworth character (laughs) all the men in the office are just they're like Oh, oh! As she's like unbuttoning her shirt, um, and and then she doesn't take off her shirt. And we're like, oh, she's like, all right, perverts, get out of here. Um, I will say he probably he, like he's he's a multifaceted man in this movie, even if it is in the worst way possible. Yeah. Um, although he does probably get the most disappointing death in the movie because he's just stabbed by Kristen Connolly at the end by accident, whereas just for comparison, yeah. Bradley Whitford is eaten by a uh, where a merman. Uh, which he really, which is uh, an ironic twist, because he's the one, he he always hopes that some group will pick the the, the merman <laughs> right, yeah. to kill them all. And I think the film does a good job of like bringing in like recognizable monsters and tropes from other films and twisting some twisting them so that they're familiar but different enough that the filmmakers won't be sued. So there's like you know there's like Hellraiser, but instead of pins in his head, he has like circular saws and stuff like that. Um, there's a giant snake. I assume that's from something Anaconda Anaconda yeah, yeah. and um, and the notion of kind of every famous monster movie or movie monster uh, sharing universe is kind of dumb anyway um, you know that's why they only made one Freddy vs. Jason um, which is why I'm glad none, uh, which is why I'm glad none of them showed up in this and I just I wish there was there like Whitford and Jenkins in this are kind of like the two of those characters you just wish there was more of and if it was if that, this movie was made today they'd They'd have like a sequel or a spin-off spin or a prequel, TV show, TV or something, show yeah. yeah, kind of like this office-style sitcom or whatever, expanding on their characters and their day-to-day lives, and like, which is something I think, oh, cool about, and then either never watch or give up after a disappointing third episode. Yeah, well, I actually just got an email from HBO Max and they've greenlit it. Your pitch. Oh, so oh, there oh, go. There's a check. <laughs> Money is raining from the yes. sky. Uh, Warner uh, Brothers. <laughs> didn't this just have its tenth anniversary? Because I feel like I, I saw a bunch of think pieces about the Cabin mm. in the Woods. Just like last week, I completely missed it. If it did, yeah, but, yeah. It's, a, it's good. It's a really good screenplay. Yeah. yeah, Jenkins and Whitford, which works as like a comedy double act, this is Jenkins and Whitford, are the best two things about the about the Captain the Woods. Just the just the just the entire universe that they have together. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, just the yeah the, the the way they make really do make it feel like it's just a, an, another an episode in Office Space or something job. like that. Yeah, just another yeah, job. Yeah. It's like the grind of it and stuff like that. And they are like obviously like it's a great, horrible greater good thing, but they kind of are. They're obviously not the good guys but like they you know they're not they're preventing the end of the world yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. you know so like they they're kind of more on the right than obviously don't want to, no one wants they're to they're bureaucrats yeah you know, they're, like, they're, they're kind of like yeah. they do serve a function but they're kind of annoying yeah exactly <laughs> you know? yeah we move on to Del Toro Sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, do you ever watch the? I didn't rewatch The Shape of Water for this, but I watched uh, Nightmare Alley. I've Actually, seen what? it recently enough. I watched it this morning. Yeah. I think it's worth talking about The Shape of Water just because, um, yeah, Jenkins has collaborated with Del Toro two times. First was Oscar Best Picture winner Shape of Water, mm. and was Jenkins's uh, was Oscar nominated for his supporting role in that. And then the second was a Best Picture nominee at this year's Oscars, Nightmare Alley, and. Um, I think they're interesting to talk about. Don't you mean commercial failure nightmare? (laughs) (laughs) It's great. It's on streaming now. It'll make it. It'll be fine. I hate when people are like, oh, movies, oh, it was a commercial failure, but it's like, it came out after a pandemic. It'll be okay. It got great reviews. I feel like The Northman is the one film where it might be a commercial failure, though. Yeah, actually, they shouldn't have never let Robert Eggers get that much money for that movie, even though I love The Northman. Yeah, me too. um, Made three million last week. How did they think when the movie begins with Ethan Hawke on the ground with his son barking like a dog yeah. that that would be like and oh that, that's a commercial play and farting while doing that as well <laughs> yeah. right okay yeah that makes a lot yeah I haven't um, seen the movie yet but uh, yeah. yeah it's really good um, <laughs> but yeah I think they're Shape of Water and Nightmare are interesting to talk about together because of um, 
I think they compare and contrast those movies and also in, in the way they use Jenkins. Mm, um, he can play more opposite characters. Yeah. yeah, and the, like The Ship Artist is very hopeful and warm romantic fantasy drama about a mute cleaner at a high security government laboratory in the 60s named Eliza, played by Sally Hawkins, who falls in love with a captured humanoid amphibian creature, played by Doug Jones, and decides to help him escape from death at the hands of an evil colonel, Michael Shannon. If I spoke about it, if I did, what would I tell you? I wonder. Would I tell you about the time? It happened a long time ago, it seems, in the last days of a fair prince's reign. Or would I tell you about the place? A small city near the coast, but far from everything else. Or, I don't know, would I tell you about her? The princess without voice. Or perhaps I would just warn you about the truth of these facts and the tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. I think what I love about The Shape of Water, aside from just the sumptuous visuals and like the clear joy and enthusiasm and sincerity Del Toro brings to the story, you know, like he's got this like much documented fascination with fairy tales and old Hollywood horrors mm. and Creature Back Lagoon. I love how all the people who are helping Liza free the creature, the heroes of the movie, are these like people marginalized in society and like one of these people is Giles, played by Jenkins, this middle-aged closeted gay man and struggling advertising illustrator. Again, like, Bone Tomahawk's character feels very fleshed out. Like, you get that this is, like, a lonely man hoping and yearning for romance, but is scared of putting himself out there because he feels his best days are behind him and because of the less accepting society of the time. But also he has some very fun scenes and as he becomes this unlikely accomplice in Eliza's espionage mission, you know? <laughs> and um, he just... He bookends the movie with that, like, fairy tale like narration. Yeah, and I the, love that. And yeah, the, it's my favourite part of the movie, I think. That poem in the final moments that gives the movie its title... Incredible uh, opening to this film, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah gorgeous. Really good. But, uh, like, the poem at the end, like, I won't recite it, Apparently, out of spoilers, but also because <laughs> I remember seeing *The Shape of Water* in cinemas and sobbing because yeah, how beautiful yeah. that poem is. And I rewatched a few clips from the movie and like the ending to prepare for this, and I sobbed again just for a clip of YouTube. In the sans context, like I'm a real crier. Like I cry. I went to Coda like last week, cried at that. Um, but uh, I just think that yeah, there's a real pathos to Jenkins's character. Try to destroy it all. <laughs> uh, you just. He makes you empathize with Giles more than you would the typical best friend yeah. in a creature feature. Mm-hmm. And um, I think even if people aren't interested in fantasy or supernatural movies, they should watch The Shape of Water. It's just a great story about yeah. love overcoming hate, you know, friendship. The yeah. bit where he, like, they bring the fish man home and he just eats one of the cats. <laughs> yeah, he's horrified <laughs> reaction at that, yeah. Um, you mentioned about you saying that the fact that if you're not into sci-fi or fantasy, this is the film to kind of go into because obviously it's a monster movie where obviously Del Toro is making a film that's very... Uh, uses like uh, golden era Hollywood trappings to make a, f- a film that's actually subversive so making a very mainstream film because I remember when it came out in one, one best page there was all this debate like whether or not it was like conventional or unconventional and I thought it was both at the same time mm, yeah, obviously yeah. And part of that is like looking at the classical views of what was a monster in Hollywood and, and trying to subvert that and, then, and obviously yeah looking at the, view, the era so the religious conservatism of the era and, and you had like you know, there's all this biblical stuff like that's going on. There's so much biblical stuff, like Samson's Delilah, and uh, she, I think uh, Lead is like an orphan who was left. At a, wasn't she, wasn't uh, she found it in a river or something like that? So very Moses-like. Yeah, so she's yeah. like a Moses figure, and like the water at the end. But obviously, like the the, the fish character is uh, what would what the Bible called an affront to God. But realistically, that the things that like that that the that the religious era conservatism of the era like uh, would consider affront to God is obviously you know homosexuality and even just you know black people inhabiting white spaces and all these things and and re- realistically the real affront to God in this film is cruelty and marginalization yeah. all these things and I think Richard Jenkins it's his most decent role it, he's in the human decency he he just exudes in this film is just like on another chart he got nominated for this right he did yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's fantastic in it and like his, it's all by some of the symbolism is a bit too loaded in this film but I, I still think it, it works as it knows what it's about and like his like his job is literally like Making at like making like imagining like white picket fence lives like like for mm-hmm. for an advertising company and like well he himself can never have that life and he he that, that sadness like the scene when he 
tries to pick up your man in the in the, the diner shop, is yeah. maybe the most devastating scene in the film. I, I, it's so sad and it's just you know you, you know he and then he goes back to to her and, and he's like you're, you're, that's for me my, for me the most scene that makes me cry is him going it's first her trying to explain to him why she empathizes with the monster yeah, and she's just through two eyes just and then him come back to her like you're all I have it's just that's that's the pinnacle of the film yeah. for me and and it's that those they're that dynamic. Yeah, and it's crazy that like like as I remember that Pisces so vividly, yeah. and like it's a movie full of, you know, these like fantasy heightened elements. Sally Hawkins has sex with an amphibious yeah. creature, but I'm like, oh, but the Jenkins scene with the pie is yeah. so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember at the time, a lot of people were like, oh, this film is like, it, it this this movie is good. I remember specifically the Irish Times saying this, but I won't say who. Um, but is it too nice? And it's like. There's a bit where Michael Shannon rips off his rotting fingers <laughs> and throws Jones them in Olivia yeah. Octavia Spencer's face. Yeah. Not to mention the way, like, um, that really agonizing death Michael Stuhlbarg gets. Oh, oh man, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Dragged by the hole in his cheek. Yeah. Oh. He loves that, Del Toro. People getting holes in their cheeks. And, like, isn't mm. it in Pan's Labyrinth? He's very yes. good at making it feel very visceral and in the moment. Yeah. 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 We talk about Nightmare Alley. Sure. Because I just think... Like, this is the polar opposite to The Shape of Water in that, like, if Shape of Water is about the power of love, Nightmare Alley is about people's capacity for awfulness. <laughs> and it's also Del Toro's only movie not to feature any fantasy or sci-fi elements. Although it kind of always feels a little bit like it could tip into a fantasy movie, yeah, but never quite yeah. does. Um, yeah, set in the 30s and 40s in America, it centers on Stan Carlyle, uh, played by Bradley Cooper, an enigmatic man with a dark past who begins to perform as a psychic, pretending to be able to read minds and speak to his audience's dead loved ones. Starting at a carnival, he and his wife, Rooney Mara, take their act to the city, where he teams up with a shady psychologist, put by Kate Blanchett, who helps him book private psychic sessions with the city social elite, one of whom is Ezra Grindle, played by Richard Jenkins. Ezra very... Grindle? What <laughs> <laughs> name. Um, wow. A very wealthy but dangerous individual. Yeah, um, I think I know some people are mixed about Nightmare Alley. I really like it, but what, what, you're you're kind of like half and half. Oh, uh, I couldn't tell you anymore. I'm, I was, mm. I think I was four pints deep when I went into the cinema, <laughs> and only more uh, during that two and a half hour film. Yeah. So um, I I remember feeling like it was good. I, it's definitely not Del Toro's best. Um, I will say that much. Um, but yeah, I and I remember also uh, there was we were talking in some group chat or other saying that like oh Richard Jenkins was kind of you know. A bit of a disappointment. I think he's a little miscast. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think I think it's nice he got the opportunity. Yes, absolutely. True. But I think when you have Willem Dafoe in the same movie, it's like okay, swap these two. I yeah. even think swapping Holt McElhaney and him would be a little better. Maybe yeah. Well, maybe not. Maybe not swapping their roles. You know. I do. Holt I think Richard is Jenkins is a kind of loyal, loyal oh, henchman, a like an Alfredy type. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Holt yeah. McElhaney, I think, would be a lot better as the kind of like. This guy who you kind of like and then is revealed to be this yeah, psychopath. It, w- it would be you know? a cool inverse of like um, his role in Mindhunter because he's like a, re- a decent yeah. man in that yeah. to going to playing a psychopath. It could be really cool. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I just think Grindle is a character who's introduced in the movie's final era. I keep saying Grindelwald. The crimes of Grindelwald. Um, yeah, Grindle's character is introduced in the movie's final era and it's, it's a long movie, 150 minutes. Mm-hmm. And he comes in having been built up by Kate Blanchett's psychologist character who seems very wary of doing business with him saying he's like he's like unstable and unpredictable and the dealings with Grindle have consequences permanent ones and um yeah, I won't spoil how Nightmare Alley ends, but, you know, side spoilers. It turns out Grindle is seeking Stan's services because he wants to contact the spirit of a woman he loved who died after he forced her to get a uh, abortion. Mm. And so um, Stan comes up with the idea of getting his wife, you know, Mara's character, who bears resemblance to the dead woman Grindle loved, to pretend to be her in a mock seance designed to fool Grindle. And right before it, Stan is asking Grindle to renounce his sins so that he's pure and that the spirit will come. And Grindle announces that he has hurt many young women who um, he and he says like uh, I was seeking in them, you know, the woman he loved, and when Stan asks how he hurt them, he just says very intensely, "I hurt them, like I hurt mm-hmm. them," and I don't, I feel like to wring maximum tension out of the Grindle character, the actor playing him could either go two ways, you know, like you can make him very outwardly sinister and volatile, so that anytime Stan is around them, like you're stressed that his con is going to be discovered, yeah. you know. Yeah. Or, more interestingly, which I think is why you would cast Jenkins, hypothetically, is that you make Grindle appear very genial and likable. You know, someone who is haunted by this one terrible mistake and is trying to atone. So that when he reveals he's hurt multiple women, it's a bit more of a twist and a bit more like a hammer blow. And I don't think Jenkins is bad at Nightmare Alley. Like, I think his scenes are very tense. 
but I think he's a bit stuck between those two choices mm. in that like yeah. he's not quite menacing enough to be the threat that the movie's been building to but he's also not acting pleasant at all so that when he makes that revelation it's not hugely surprising like I think a lot of the scenes he's he's, he's just kind of intense and a bit whiny mm. and yeah. um, I think there's one or two moments where Grindel lashes out at Stan and Jenkins makes an interesting choice to play it as sort of like a petulant child which yeah, I liked yeah. and I, I wish there was a bit more of it but um, I just think the character doesn't pop the way it should fully and I, I wonder if you know Jenkins is just kind of too nice to play a villainous character but also thought I can't play him as likable because he's a villain yeah, you know yeah. what do you think Mark I, 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 I similar to Andrew in terms of the Nightmare Alley in general I, I think five points in yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like, no, I, I, that, I, it's not his best. Uh, it's found it too long. I kind of felt a lot of this, the non-Bradley Cooper stuff. Because it's weird, because there's only that bit. This, the, the actual circus section isn't that long. And then I felt like maybe Jenkins' performance, it was his character's a bit truncated. His stuff, is, his arc is a bit truncated, maybe, a little bit. It, it suffered from that kind of... The film was both baggy, and then it was also kind of at the same time a lot of that other emotional beats, character beats of a lot of the other characters were kind of, I felt a bit rushed and I think he suffered from that so I think I agree when he gives that, tells you, it, it almost it almost feels like that's a bit weird that that, that turned, but not in a way it should be shocking but because like it, the groundwork wasn't there maybe, I'm not, like, for his reveal, I don't know, mainly because the character from the moment felt a bit odd and strange that it didn't, wasn't that surprising and maybe he's, he could have played that differently or maybe he could have got a bit more time been introduced a bit earlier in the film, I don't know like I so it, yeah, it didn't work for me for, for hugely because of like I, I think it was just it was a bit truncated in that, in that section of the film. Yeah. But um, uh, I mostly liked the movie, but it, it was too long. I think it's a fantastic ending. And yeah, I think, the ending's I think, kind yeah. of amazing. The ending yeah. is the in the book and in the forties version they have the ending, but then they attack in another scene as like a happy ending. Oh, do they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The forties movie is actually great. Yeah, I've heard that. And yeah, I think it's just yeah. a good story. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely need to see it again. I yeah. Would say. Um, do you want to Mark talk about the humans for yes, a wrap up? Very, very briefly. Um yeah, so the humans, um it's based on a play by Stephen Karam, I believe. Yes. Uh, it's, it follows the Blake family. Um the daughter Bridget Blake, played by Beanie Felstein, is moving into a rinky dinky, very, very rinky dinky. Well, it's two floors, so it's but it's this horrible, very, very New York apartment in that it's uh, very claustrophobic it's it's inhumanly bare because he just moved in and, and just constant noises going around so the, it's basically the, the, the premise is that the, she's invited her family over her, uh, her, her sibling and her, her sibling played by Amy Schumer and her parents played by Richard Jenkins and who plays the mother again um, I think the mom is from the play yeah yeah yeah. Actually, yeah I don't know who that is and uh, <laughs> Stephen Young plays uh, Beanie Falstein's uh, partner as well and June Squibb is in there as the the grandmother who is kind of uh, she is has dementia and she's in the apartment. So the premise is that she, the family are coming over for I think Thanksgiving dinner and it's uh, very very dark. It, it, it's it, it, the film itself. Uh, so it, it, it's one of those things where it's like it's like the entire family come together and you can tell there's lots of stuff that's not being said. It's unspoken. She's showing them around the apartment and the, the kind of it's it, it kind of reminds me of uh, Charlie Coffin's like uh, film works and that it's like there's a lot of banalities going on there like it's just like the, the everyday conversations but in through that you can get this kind of this kind of existential despair is slowly starting to seep in more and more and more yeah. um, Richard Jenkins I would say he plays uh, Beanie Felstein's father character I would say he's although it's an ensemble he's the closest thing to a main character in the film he bookends it he's the first and last thing you see in the film um, and he's for the most part seems like the character who has the most his life together the most he's Oh, he's close to retirement it seems like he's been a teacher for his life the his two children are kind of wayward his his his, his daughter is like a, is, is a musician but you know how difficult it is to live as a musician she she's kind of she's in this terrible apartment um <laughs> with her we just moved in with her boyfriend and uh the, her she her life is a kind of directionless um uh, so f- and like and amy schumer has, has seems having a because she recently broke up with her, her her girlfriend, and she feels like a bit wayward, and they're openly talking about this. And the whole the whole film is kind of about how, uh, when, when we meet together with our family, we, we kind of try to pretend like the things that are going on in our life outside don't exist anymore. But mm-hmm. you can never really uh, leave them outside your life. So like yeah. literally the 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 apartment is it's like it's it, I, it's the space that really matters. So I'm not like I imagine it works fantastically on stage, and it works mostly well in film, but it it really does feel like feel feel like a filmed play. Yeah. And it, like there's, it's, it's always creaking everywhere. Like there's always these noises. There's water falling in. Like literally, it's like 
the the unspoken um, the, uns, the, the uns the things that are unspoken are, are making its way into the apartment to the to the, to, to to like damp ceilings or like yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To, to to dodgy paint in the wall like it's it's, it's and, it, and it gets more and more intense as it goes on. It almost feels like a horror aesthetic. It, it, really, like it feels like a J horror or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Richard Jenkins he seems the most put together, but as the film goes on, his life starts. It's already unraveled before, but we actually don't know that. And his life seems to slowly reveal to us, slowly fall apart. And by the end of it, he's kind of the most alone. It's revealed like he seems like the most put together because he's he's the one who's always more has stuff to say about other people's life. But it's kind of revealed the reason he's doing that is a deflection constantly because how close his own life is falling apart. And I think it's probably his most the darkest role I've seen him do. And he, maybe he's played darker characters, I guess, in Cabin in the Woods. But this is a much more meatier dark darkness. Mm, yeah. And I think he bookends the film, especially. When we find out why he feels so alone and why why that why he so he suddenly becomes so terrified alone because the family he has that he's kind of I wouldn't say putting down but can't you know he suddenly that becomes it feels like that's that's he's lost to him and because of his own insecurities and his and his and he, there's like great the ending is fantastic because like he's suddenly alone in this, this dark apartment and he there's only a one little bit of light and he's terrified to be on his own and obviously it's kind of a, a, a symbolic light of 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 going back in the outside world and not being left alone to, to die basically or whatever however you read it but uh and like it's i don't know if you have, did you see it i did i watched it um just when i got it added onto netflix it's good um yeah. i didn't really enjoy it because yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like it does feel like a film play and i think it makes interesting things to try and be cinematic and that like yeah. it actually feels like you're watching like almost you're eavesdropping on a family like the camera sometimes is very far back away mm. from the actors um and I, I found what it was doing very interesting but i did feel a little bit kind of fragmentary i don't mm. know like um it took me a while to really get into it. I do think the ending is very good, though. Yeah, I think the first half is is, low, is, is weaker than the second half. It, yeah, it's kind yeah. of like Altman-esque, but not in the way that I, I enjoyed it. It relies too much on these uh, long takes that are from the other yes. room, which obviously is supposed to be very, like, distancing, but it's like... Like I saw the same shot from the other from the kitchen like twenty times. It feels a bit repetitive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then when it gets on, when it gets closer and closer, I think the film does get a bit better and it gets a bit more cinematic and he does a good job, uh, Karam. But because uh, he, I think he it's his own, his own, his own play. play. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it does feel like a play. But I, I do think that the the screenplay, I'd say it works fantastically on stage. I think it must be two levels or something on stage. And that would be really interesting to look at. But like. It, the the space does get a bit, bit but I think oh, I enjoyed it overall I, I actually think Jenkins is, is is actually excellent I think he's the best thing about it and I think he's the way he just slowly he seems like his the slow reveals of his of how his life is capitulating are very strong and he's I think he has the strongest moment he is he the guy who reads out the the granny at one point re- writes an email to her yes. granddaughters which she wrote when she she was still a bit more cognizant and she was so she wanted to say and it is a beautiful moment and it, it, that did make me cry. I don't know if you did, but that really didn't make me cry. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a be- really good scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Email I know that facepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shane Fernandez for help with the show. Um, if you love I Know the Face, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Heads to Plus, where you can find special exclusive bonus episodes. We have multiple available now, including a few in our Leading Legend series, focusing on A-listers like who we got, Brad Pitt. Uh, Jodie Foster Denzel Washington Denzel Washington uh, Case 2 Case 2 Yes um, Mark anything you'd like to plug? Uh, no just my reviews and head stuff I don't really um, I don't really I'm not as active I wish I was but no just uh, thanks for having me on A again. terrific That's, reviewer terrific yeah. reviewer <laughs> well, very welcome on the show um, Andrew where can people find what you're working? You can find me the head stuff gaming section where we talk about what we play why we play and how we play it Check me out at joe.e See you in your Bye bye This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. 